So while you're turning to Luke chapter 4, I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard. In the precious name of the one whom Haggai called, at least in the authorized version, the, the desire of the nations, Jesus Christ the Lord. I'm not going to encourage anybody to go. Other people have done that already, and other people will do that in the meetings that follow. I hope that the doctors and dentists were listening to what Jerry said about the opportunity in northern Iraq. I'm not going to encourage anybody to give. Others have already done that. Others will do that. I'm not going to do that. I hope. Those of you who have any uh, liquid assets were listening when Jim said what he said about Nepal, and I hope nobody will stop supporting Dottie, and I hope many people will start, but um, that's not going to be what I talk about. And, uh, and if you've got non-liquid assets and nothing else, maybe you should sell them. Yeah, I said I wasn't going to do that now. I'm starting. <laughs> I'll back away, just, just uh, trying to echo what they said, okay? Um, what, I, what I want you to do is I want you to come near. I want you to come near the Lord, and I want you to listen. And then when you hear what he says, I want you to do it. That's all. Don't want you to hear from me. I want you to hear from the Lord. And in a minute, I'm going to read what I believe is the record of the most shocking sequence in the Bible. Now, that's just my opinion. And if you have another nomination for a more shocking sequence, tell me by Sunday night, and I'll stop saying that, okay? And I'll, if you can convince me, I'll say, well, really, this other passage is more shocking. And let me say from the beginning that I'm not really going to apply this passage because if I do, and the reason I'm not is because I'm afraid to. Jesus wasn't afraid to. But I am afraid to. I'm going to let you apply it. I am going to help you apply it, but I'm not, going to, I'm not going to press it home. I will compliment you because what I say a little bit later could be a little offensive when I, I lead you to the application. I have no doubt that you're among the best people in the world. There are, there are, a, lot of, there are a lot of reasons I say that. It's not vain flattery. 95% of you were at church last Sunday. 95, well, 98% of you were at church last Sunday. 98% of you will be at church this Sunday, and you're at church on a Friday night. That's very explicable in terms of our Jewish friends who go to synagogue or temple on Friday night. That's very explicable in terms of our Roman Catholic friends who want to get the mass commitment out of the way as early as they can in the weekend, maybe on Saturday. It's very explicable in terms of our friends who go to the mega churches who have to start their meetings early in the weekend to accommodate the throngs. It's only explicable in a narrower, narrower field of explanation for people like us in a church this size. It's because you love Jesus. It's because you care about missions. And it's because you're among the best people in the world. Now, I've said this for many years because it's a subjective impression. The people in Memphis are the most generous people in the world. Now, all I meant by that was the most generous people in my experience. It was a subjective impression. I have recently had objective verification of my subjective impression. 
there are 12,000 nonprofits in Shelby County. 12,000. You know what that means? It means that Shelby County is the most generous county in the most generous country in the world. Because you know what the national rank is for Shelby County? Number one. Think of how many more populous counties there are than Shelby County on this continent. National rank, number one. Do you know what the national rank is for Shelby County in per capita giving, charitable giving? Number one. Number one. The most sometimes Salt Lake edges us out, but I think most recently we're number one. And Salt Lake have to do it as a religious duty. Now you might not feel so complimented at the end, but that's one reason I don't feel that's not that's one reason I don't feel great urgency in trying to get people to do something different when they're doing so many, so many wonderful things already. See if you see why it's so shocking. Ask yourself why this happens. How did it happen? What catalyzed the transition in this passage? Luke chapter 4. We'll begin the reading in verse 14. Let's stand in honor of God and his word. Luke 4, 14. Hear the word of God. This is right after the temptation and Luke's arrangement of the events of Jesus' ministry. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread through all the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, Isaiah 61 in our Bibles, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's his way of saying, that's me. The prophet was talking about me. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do hear. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Here comes, the miss, here comes the missions message. This is the missions application of the Bible from the Old Testament scriptures. He brings it to their hearing. I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Nahaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. 
And they got up and drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Heavenly Father, we'd like to go Jesus' way too, even if we caused the offense Jesus caused. Show us how to do it in these few hours this weekend. For Christ's own sake, we ask it. Amen. Please be seated. Now, the Jews were greatly fearful that all the millennial promises which, was give, which were given to their nations had accrued to the Romans. It wasn't a Davidic king who sat on a throne ruling the world. It was a Roman emperor. A Roman emperor who was called Pontifex Maximus, the highest priest. It wasn't the Jewish Messiah who was being worshipped by the nations. It wasn't a Jewish Messiah who was exalted in the nations. It was the Roman emperor. So they were clamoring for vindication. They were clamoring for the vindication of Jewish religion, for proof that God was their God and he was their people. And they were confident that the Jewish Messiah would bring this vindication and confirmation and here comes one of their own. Archaeologists tell us that in the first century, Nazareth was a muddy little village of about 50 houses. Think of it. And here comes the Lord Jesus who's created a sensation in Judea and in the capital. And he arrives in Nazareth. And in verses 15 to 19, we see the scripture read from the Isaiah scroll, 16 to 19. Um, he, he arrives at the synagogue. He stands up to read. The book of the prophet is given to him, beginning in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. That's what Messiah means. Did you know that? Mitshiach in Hebrew. Christos in the New Testament language. One who's been anointed. What does an anointing mean? It means a designation. It means an authorization. It means an endowment with power. It means God has decided to do something through this one whom he's anointed. And Jesus is saying, that's me. Isaiah was talking about me. He anointed me to... Destroy the Gentiles? Kick Rome out? Kick the filthy boot of Rome off the neck of innocent Israel? No, to preach the gospel. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said God had one son, and he made him a preacher. To preach the gospel. And he sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. That's what a pastor does. He ministers to the needs of the people. He sent me to be a preacher. He sent me to be a pastor. That's not what they were looking for. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now he stopped in the middle of the verse because the next Part of the verse, 
talks about the vengeance that this anointed one will bring. That will happen at the second coming. But it wasn't the kind of liberation and deliverance which was on offer in the first coming. He closed the book, verse 20. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everybody in the place were on him. He said, the scripture was talking about me. Now, look at this. All were speaking well of him. Wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips, and they were saying, i got to tell you this to be fair and to be an honest expositor. Most of our best Bible teachers believe that the next words are words of disdain. The words when these people in Nazareth begin to say, is this not Joseph's son? What our Bible teachers, most of our Bible teachers, not all of them, tell us is that what they're saying is, well, I mean, we know the kid. He just lived down the block. We knew his daddy. What's he talking about? I, I, I Honestly, and I'm not worthy to have an opinion. I'm not a scholar. I'm a student just like you are. But I think the people who interpret the passage that way are, are reading ahead. They're reading what happens ahead back in what's being said when they say, is this not Joseph's son? I don't think it was, I don't think they were dissing him. I don't think it was disdain. I think it was pride. I think it was local pride. Because the, the thing that Luke says just before he reports that, he says they were speaking about his gracious words. They were affirming him. And I believe that this comment about his father's name continues the, the affirmation and the positive feelings. That I think what he's saying, isn't this fantastic? This is one of our families. This is somebody we know who's a sensation in Israel. He's bringing something wonderful to our little town. You know, patriotism is a beautiful thing. Patriotism says, I love my country because it's my country. That's a beautiful thing. I believe it's a thing that pleases God. Nationalism is an ugly thing. Nationalism says, I hate your country because it's not my country. That's nationalism. And the world is rife with nationalism which is an ugly thing. I got a friend here from uh, Budapest, who's my colleague in, in Budapest for many years, who's visiting us, and he asked me something when we were getting in the car, and, and I wasn't paying any attention to it. And I just said, yes. And he said, I ask you an either-or question. <laughs> you can't answer an either-or question with the words yes or no. Do you understand that? And it reminded me of something that I'd like to connect to our passage. On the day that the manna ceased, Joshua had come to Jericho. Joshua 5, 13. He lifted up his eyes 
and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went up to him. Joshua was brave and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? That's an either or question. The man said, no. <laughs> See there? Okay. The man said, no. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No, rather I indeed am come as captain of the host of the Lord. Joshua fell on his face to the earth, bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. It was Jesus. It was the pre-incarnate Christ. Yes, God is the covenant God of Israel. Yes, he made covenant with Abram and his descendants. Yes, that's true. But he's the Lord of the Goyim. He's the Lord of the nations. And he will be exalted in the nations, in all the nations. Jesus came to establish that truth. And first century Israel found it unpalatable. The, the congregation's first response in verse 22 was wonderful words, wonderful words. We know the boy's family. He's one of us. Verses 23, 24, Christ states a principle. You will say to me, physician, heal yourself. The works you did in Capernaum, do in your own neighborhood. Basically what he's saying is, Look, all the ways you ministered in other places, you're at home now. Do for us what you did for them. But he says, you know, a prophet has honor every place but the place he grew up. Except, except when he goes home. And then he appears to shift gears. Now, there's actually a connection. It's not that easy to find. There's actually a connection with what he had been saying and what he knew they were thinking. He's speaking to their thoughts. They don't actually say this, but he addresses their thoughts. Remember, that's one way we figure out why Jesus said what he says. He doesn't just speak to words. He speaks to thoughts. He knew what they were thinking. And what he's saying is, you know what? The great prophets who grew up here in the north of Israel, they didn't always just minister to the people in their hometown. They actually... <laughs> They actually ministered to Gentiles. And not only did they minister to Gentiles, they ministered to the enemies of our people. Now, some of our best expositors, including the mighty Spurgeon, say that the rage which followed was rage against God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty elected some Gentiles in the generation of Elijah and the generation of Elisha. And Spurgeon, who loved the doctrine of God's sovereignty, said that the townspeople of Nazareth were upset at that. And that's why they raged at Jesus to try to come. Well, you know, when I disagree with Spurgeon, I usually lie down until I get over it. <laughs> but I don't think that was mainly the doctrine of God's sovereignty that they were objecting to. Objectionable as that doctrine is among so many who are supposed to be God's people. And by the way, one reason I complimented you as God's people 
One of the reasons I said that, one of the reasons I said, you're the best people in the world, and I meant it. I'm not patronizing you. Is because these were the best people in the world too. You know, I, I looked out here at this crowd and I said, it's just so heartening to know that so many people have boats at First of Ann. <laughs> I mean, as in the generation of Noah, so it's been the last two days. And you fought and splashed your way out here on a Friday night of all times, a cozying up time with a movie and a kicking back. And, and, you, and, you can't, and you're the best people in the world. So were they. They had to walk to church. They took pains too. They went to trouble too. They could only go to the place of worship by walking. So they were also the best people. And the thing that just sobers us and sends us to our face, how could the best people in the world turn on him like that? How could they do that? And you know what? All he did, they didn't get offended when he said he was the fulfillment of the Isaiah 61 prophecy. That didn't offend them. That kind of encouraged them. All he did was he told them what the Bible said. He just told them what the Bible said. He reminded them of stories they already knew. They'd known those stories all their lives. They just refused to draw the obvious implications and inferences. Now, in the generation of Elijah, there was a great troubler of Israel. He was a king called Ahab. And the reason Ahab became a troubler instead of a helper is because he had a wife named, she corrupted him. Her father was a priest. You know what that meant? And she loved the religion of her father. You know what that meant? It meant she was a devil worshiper. And she was the fount of corruption in her husband, who was the fount of corruption in Israel. He called Elijah the troubler of Israel, but he, the king, and his consort, were the troublers of Israel. It was a preacher from this city who made that characterization of Ahab and Jezebel so famous in that famous sermon. The ugly toad who squatted upon the throne of Israel, said our Dr. R.G. Lee. Well, Jezebel was from Sidon. She was a Phoenician. Guess where Zarephath was? It was near Sidon. So what's the great problem in Israel in the generation of Elijah? The great problem is a Phoenician woman. Now, it was a generation of drought. And because it was a generation of drought, it was a generation of famine. And because it was a generation of famine, people were starving to death, especially Jewish widows who had no mail to provide for them. So the God of Israel looking over the starving widows. Who does he send relief to in the person of the great prophet Elijah? He sends relief to a Phoenician woman. What was the problem in Israel? It was a Phoenician woman. And in the next generation, his young protege, Elisha, all those generations were generations of leprosy. 
Leprosy was the AIDS of those days. Leprosy was hideous, and you couldn't hide it. Leprosy was incurable. Leprosy meant isolation from family, friends, society, from all but other lepers, and ultimately a hideous death. And there were many lepers in Israel in Elisha's generation. So who does God send the healing prophet to? Was it some leper among the Jews? No. It was a general in an army which threatened Israel's northern flank. It was an enemy general. It was a Syrian general that God showed mercy to. All he did was remind them that that's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. And when he reminded them of that, they flew at him. And they tried to kill him. The worshipers who walked to church among the covenant people, that's the way the service ended. Can you imagine that? What does it mean? Well, one thing it means is that we read the Bible selectively. All of us do. I do it too. We run past the inconvenient verses. We turn a, we avert our eyes when we come to a passage that, that we don't like or that makes us uncomfortable. And that's another thing. Uh, we're not going to have revival unless we have prophetic preaching. We're not going to have prophetic preaching until our congregations allow their preachers to preach like a prophet preached. Do you think that congregations felt comfortable after a prophet held forth? Do you think they left the places smiling? Do you think they said, that was really a nice sermon? Jesus was a prophet. Elijah had to hide. Elijah had to hide. Jesus had to flee the meeting. There's only one miracle worked in this passage. It's the miracle of his escape. He passed through the midst of them. It means that they read the Bible selectively. It meant the kind of God that they wanted was not the kind of God who was there. Patrick Morley said there are two gods. There's the God we want and there's the God who's there. The sooner we stop worshiping the God we want, who is an idol, and the sooner we start worshiping the God who's there, the better off we'll be. They had a God like the household gods of Laban whom Rachel stole. Do you remember that story? They had those gods you couldn't see because Rachel was sitting on them. All you could see was Rachel. Her father couldn't find his gods because his daughter was sitting on them. God's not like that. God is not like a tribal God. He's not like a provincial deity. His authority doesn't stop at the border. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
made Hashemayim Hawa Eretz, the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, the earth is the Lord, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. He's God Almighty. You can't, he's not portable. You can't pick him up and take him with you. And you know, we've talked from this, in this room in times, years past, about how there are theological formulas which work from left to right, but they don't work from right to left. Remember that? For instance, God is love. That's true, isn't it? Love is God. That's not true. It works from left to right. It doesn't work from right to left. Or we are made in God's image. That's true. Therefore, God is like us. That's not true. How about this, which is a slightly different formula? We belong to God. That's true. God belongs to us. That's not true. It may be true in a very narrow sense, but in the main, it's not true. He's not their household God. He's the God of the nations. He's the God who will be exalted in the nations. And what that means, and what it meant in Luke 5, quoting First and Second Kings, is that God wants to have mercy on our enemies. God wants to show compassion to people who are very easy for us to hate because they're different from us. They threaten our way of life. Listen, I'm not going to apply this because I'm a coward. I could apply this very specifically to the United States in 2019. I'll only say this, and this is probably going too far. Somehow, some way, we've gotten the idea that, that we're special. And that, and that God owes us something. And our, our only memory, almost from colonial days, is the memory of being on top because we repulsed the mightiest empire in the world twice. And we, we simply cannot imagine that we could ever be subjugated, that we could ever be occupied. Now, whatever we believe about the United States being a chosen people, we know that Israel was a chosen people. We know that. There's no doubt about that. That's in the Bible. I really can't find us in the Bible. We can find Israel all over the Bible. From Genesis 12 to Revelation 22, the whole Bible is about one man's family. That man's name is Abraham, and we are his spiritual children. Not his national children, his spiritual children, if we know Jesus, Galatians 3. Well, what do we know about God's chosen people? They were slaves in Egypt. Then they were occupied and deported by Assyria, 722 B.C. And then Syria was succeeded by Babylon. 586 B.C., the two southern tribes were occupied and deported and became strangers in the land of Babylon. Then they were ruled by the Persians. Then they were ruled by the Greeks. Then they were ruled by the Syrian successors of Alexandria. Then they were ruled by Rome. Oh, my goodness. Even if you think you are, even if you think we are God's chosen people, 
Does that mean we're never going to be slaves? Does that mean we're never going to be occupied? Does that mean we're never going to be deported? What protection is that? We need to fall down on our faces and beg mercy. And somebody said this. I think it was Nada. We need to ask God to give us love for our enemies and compassion for our enemies. That's what Jesus came to teach. And when he began to, began to teach it, they tried to kill him. What are we going to do? When we get the message, how are we going to respond? Now, only the Holy Spirit can make this work. I can't make it work. Our missionary guests can't make it work. Proskineo can't make it work. Jim Pendleton can't make it work. Cole can't make it work. Only the Holy Spirit can make it work. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One come down. May the Holy Spirit come down to make us less like ourselves and more like his son. God bless Memphis. God bless America. And God make America a blessing to the nations.